to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is Episode 4, The Light Fantastic. So, The Light Fantastic is the second Discworld novel published in 1986. Because The Color of Magic is the only Discworld novel that ends on a cliffhanger, I decided to have us read this one next so we could resolve that particular storyline as well as other story elements from the last novel. The Light Fantastic, while still satirizing sword and sorcery elements, is more in the mold of the later Discworld novels with no chapter or novella breaks like The Color of Magic. There has been a graphic novel adaptation of this book, as well as a miniseries that adapted both The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic, with Sir David Jason playing the part of Rincewind, David Bradley as Cohen the Barbarian, Sean Astin as Two Flower, Tim Curry as Tryman, and Christopher Lee as Death, or taking over the role of Death from previous miniseries. That's a pretty star-studded cast. Yeah, it's a really good cast. I, I have a lot of opinions about that miniseries, but you can't fault the cast. I've never seen it. The Light Fantastic picks up right where the color of magic left off, with Rincewind falling off the edge of the disc. The Octavo, the grimoire with the eight spells of the universe, saves him so as not to lose one of the great spells that has been stuck in Rincewind's head since he was kicked out of the Unseen University. But it turns out that the Discworld is in danger. An ominous red star has appeared in the sky, and magic has become unreliable as the Great Atuan travels further into the shores of reality. The eight spells of the Octavo need to be said, precisely at the right time, in order to save the Discworld. But will Rincewind and Two Flower be able to return to the Unseen University in time to say them? I love that I said that, like, we're not going to talk about spoilers in this. Mm. Like, <laughs> That's but, it. That's the podcast. Three minutes long. There you go, folks. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's just it. Go, go read it and then yeah. come back later. So you, in your own words, were not too pushed by the color of magic. What was your initial reaction to this novel, The Light Fantastic? I was significantly more pushed. I'm thinking of a Goodreads review I saw of The Light Fantastic, which is, it's stuck in my head now because I think it's fantastic, which is all it says is, like the first, but more so. There are a lot of similar story elements, and obviously there are things that are introduced in the first book that are pulled through into this book, but it feels less contrived, I think, than The Color of Magic. It feels more like a cohesive novel. Yeah, everything that The Color of Magic like starts or tries to set up, I feel like The Light Fantastic is leagues better, or you know, improves it in a dramatic way way like between books like normally like if you have a bad series or whatever you look at it and it's like oh the writing in the first couple books is bad but after maybe three or four books you know the the author really hits their stride and you know it becomes a series we all know whereas this one is like there's fairly big turnaround or fairly quick turnaround between color of magic and the light fantastic um i don't remember what year Color of Magic was published, but it's, you know, a fairly quick, it's a fairly quick time period as well. 1983. So three years previously to the color, or er, to the Light Fantastic. Yeah. 
It almost feels like the color of magic is a proof of concept novel. Like, I, this is what I'm doing. This is sort of the vibe that I'm going with. And then the light fantastic is like, okay, here's how I can actually do something with this vibe. Like, here's how I can. Here's how Rincewind can still win. Right, exactly, exactly. Which, you know, he doesn't win that often. So you have to, you have to take the wins as you find them. So the title, I think the title of the book is also fascinating. So the first book, The Color of Magic, is a reference to Octarine, which is that eighth color, right? That, that the spells are, that, that, that's what magic looks like is this color. And we talked a little bit about like what that color actually is. But The Light Fantastic is actually a direct quote from Milton. So kind of like the Weird Sisters is a quote from Shakespeare. We get this quote from Milton, even though as far as I can tell, nothing in the Light Fantastic is a direct parody of Milton, which is a little disappointing. I love anything that parodies Milton. I think Milton deserves all of the shit he gets as an English student. It's true. It's true. Have you heard the conspiracy theory that it's actually Milton's daughters who wrote a lot of Paradise Lost? No, but I don't want to believe that because I really hate it and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to like that shit about women trying to make it in a predominantly male controlled society back then, you know? The only good thing that I can think of that Milton wrote is like the first five pages of Paradise Lost. Those are yeah. amazing, but the rest of it is absolute shit. Oh, what the shit is the Milton Samson Agonistes, I, I think it's called. I think that was an interesting concept. Yeah, Samson Agonistes, where it's like Samson, after being imprisoned, after Delilah um, cuts his hair and stuff. And it's like a, an interesting meditation on like what it means to be in he a hero, you know, like this kind of prophesied person who's meant to deliver all of his people safely away from the Philistines and whatever. And then now he's in jail and his strength is taken. But yeah, like it's an interesting concept but also not well executed like a lot of milton stuff like paradise lost is what if the devil was actually kind of a tragic hero oh wait i can't actually write all of that concept because of the church like it's it's like he had these great ideas but could never follow through on them just the last thing on milton i think First of all, props to Milton for giving us the start of the sexy Satan trend, because without him, we would not have <laughs> Tom Ellis in Lucifer, and also Mark Pellegrino in Supernatural, but he's more of like a Dilf vibe. <laughs> but also, yes. like, it's really weird, like, learning about this, because there's this concept called Arianism, not the Nazi thing. This is spelt with an I instead of a Y, which is basically the school of Christian thought where it's like, well, Jesus is not actually like divine, you know, because it, it basically revolves around, I think maybe you could tie this into Discworld, bear with me, but it's like for Christ's sacrifice to make sense for him to give himself up, well, then he has to not be divine or else to put it the way my, my lecture did is stay with me for three years. The moral maths don't add up, you know, for this to make sense. Christ has to be, like, Christ is the most powerful of the created beings, but he is undoubtedly a created being. Right. So almost as if to take the place of humanity, he has to be fully human. Yeah, to give yourself up for something, to make a sacrifice, you have to have something worth sacrificing. Because if he's an immortal, undying being, well, 
letting himself be crucified doesn't make any sense. You know, a hero always has to sacrifice something. And I guess if we wanted to flimsily tie it into Discworld, you know, Rincewind has given up his magic because he's got this spell in his head that he needs to say at the right time. Whereas if he were an all-powerful wizard like Gandalf, who knew the spell, he'd be able to do regular spells at the same time. Yeah, he. it is interesting the way that this book sort of seeks to recontextualize Rincewind a bit, which we can talk about. The final thing I do want to say about the title is that The Light Fantastic comes from the poem La Allegro, and it means, like, The Light Fantastic means to, like, dance lightly with extravagance. Yeah, that's... That's a big phrase here in the UK. You hear that a lot, to trip the light fantastic. It just means mm-hmm. to dance. And so for the longest time, I did think this was a novel related somehow to dancing. Well, it kind of is if you think about the fact that even though the main characters of this book are obviously Rincewind and Two Flower and Cohen, etc., the person who's actually going on the journey is the great Atuan. And you could think about him as sort of swimming through space towards this light, right? And so that's kind of, I, I don't know, like that's, that's kind of to me what the light fantastic is. It's a, it's a reference to what the Great Atuan is doing, as opposed to everybody on the disc world who's like running around trying to figure out if the world is ending or not. Yeah. But let's, let's talk a little bit. Let's, let's dive right in here. So we talk a lot about locations in this podcast. And we see a couple of ones that we've seen before, and we see a new one, well, new-ish one, because we got glimpses of the Unseen University in Mort when Albert makes his very short appearance at the Unseen University, replacing his statue in the quad, basically. Here we actually get to see more of like what the, un- like what the politics are of the Unseen University. We get to see more of like the architecture. We have a lot more wizard characters. What did you think of the Unseen University? I think that I think I really enjoyed the Unseen University. First of all, just as a name, I think it's fantastic. Also, isn't there a book later on in the series called Unseen Academicals, right? Yes. But also it's like I've had this name in my head for years and years because when I was I want to say 7 I want to say 7 we have, I don't know whether you have it in America, the Scholastic Book Fair. Yes. Yeah, where they would bring yeah. like basically big cases full of books and there'd be like massive black things that would open out like a book itself and you would have all the books like arrayed there. And there was this one book that I got, which was about fantasy and it was about like the creatures of it and stuff. And it had little stickers that you could put in. And so among other things, it introduced me to Ents and Gandalf, and stuff, and so that made me go, oh, for my next birthday, I want Lord of the Rings. So I read those when I was eight, but then also it included Rincewind, and it's like, oh. you know, he's a student of the Unseen uh, like unseen University, and I was like, whoa, that's such a cool name. And so I am 21 now, so that's 14 years? Is, is that it's the correct It's been a journey maths? for you. Yeah, not unlike Rincewind, I've had this name in my head for bloody most of my life. Yeah, it's it's been in your head, scaring away all of the other other characters from the Discworld. All of no, all of the other magical schools, because I don't want to associate with Harry Potter anymore um, as a trans person. But also, I think the only other 
magic school that's taken place in my head is Break Bills University from the Magician series, but also like they spend very little time there. <laughs> yeah, aren't they just unimportant. there for like the first like forty pages of the novel? Yeah, and then the TV show there's a bit more importance put on it, but it's like you know this place is being invaded, and it's like one of the few locations we have on Earth. So I guess it's there. You know, it's interesting because it has Unseen University as a place, like as a geographical location, a school of magic on the Discworld, or really the school of magic on the Discworld. It it has such an arc because it kind of becomes something else later on in the series. So this we're seeing it kind of at the beginning of that arc in this particular novel. But I think what's really interesting about it is the idea that like this is a much darker place than, say, like something like Hogwarts or even really Breakbills, even though Breakbills does have some darkness to it. Like the Unseen University at this point, like all of the wizards advance by bumping each other off, basically. <laughs> like they they sort of know that they can advance in the hierarchy by killing each other. And so that kind of creates this air of paranoia in the mm. university. What did you think about that aspect? That was hilarious. Like, I've literally just found it in the book, the bit between Tryman and Galder Weatherwax. Is is he any relation to a particular granny, perchance? No comment. This will, this is, this is a discussion for a later episode. Okay, very good. But yeah, so I love the, like, weird bickering old men dynamics. So it's like, you know, at one point, it's like, your faith shames me, said Galder. The wizard who captures the spell would bring great honor on himself and others, said Tryman. The others have used boots and all manners of, el of elsewhere spells. Why do you propose using him, master? Did I detect a hint of sarcasm there? Absolutely not, master. Not even a smidgen. Not even the merest smidgen, master. Good, because I don't propose to go. And then later on, we were like, where Tryman makes his first attempt on Galder's life, where it's like, Galder laughed. <laughs> And the knife left Tryman's hand at such speed that, because of the somewhat sluggish nature of Disclite, it actually grew a bit shorter and a little more massive as it plunged with unerring aim towards Galder's neck. It didn't reach it. Instead, it swerved to one side and began a faster orbit, so fast that Galder appeared suddenly to be wearing a metal collar. He turned around, and to Tryman it seemed that he had suddenly grown several feet taller and much more powerful. The knife broke away and shuddered into the door, a mere shadow's depth from Tryman's ear. Early in the morning, said Gen said Galder pleasantly. My dear lad, you will need to stay up all night. <laughs> I love that. I also I love just you'll need to stay up all night just as a pithy remark where it's like, you know, that's a thing that we when we used to try and pull one over on our mother, she would say, you know, you know, you don't get up early enough in the morning to pull one over on me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a phrase that I think is it it means something very specific, but Pratchett has this way sometimes of taking those phrases and like turning them on their head or saying something that kind of subverts them. Yeah. And so like this is a particularly humor this is a particularly humorous example of that. Yeah, so I think it's like what Pratchett does is a combination of like taking things literally where it's like, well, if this phrase is a literal expression of something, what does that mean? But then also it, he defamiliarizes it like Tolstoy does an awful lot in his work where it's like, let's treat this as something completely alien where we say this and then we go, well, why do we say this? Like, it makes no sense. These objects make no sense. 
you know, Rincewind says something similar later when Two Flowers like, you're scared of heights. And he says, I'm not actually scared of heights. I'm scared of depths. Yes. I, wa- I want to touch on that in just a second. But it's like, I think what Galder Weatherwax says there is a much better... I really hate the... Fr- I used to love it as a child when I read it in the Da Vinci Code at 13 when uh, Lee Teabing says... My dear, it's so late that it's early. But then I saw it crop up everyone. I was like, you know what? I hate this phrase. Mm. That like juxtaposition between night and day. But may I also offer a similar phrase that my Irish mother also uses when you try of to put. Yeah. She says, it's not in the last shower I came down. Oh. So she That's didn't come. Like, um, she didn't come down in the last rain shower. Yeah. There's one. Uh, I didn't fall off the wagon yesterday. Mm. That was. That that's another one that I've heard before as well. Yeah, we don't say that one. We have much more abstruse. <laughs> Living in Ireland is so fun because we have like this whole version of English called Hiberno English, and it's really really fascinating to study. I'd recommend T. P. Dolan's Dictionary of Hiberno English to find out more. But it's like we use all these words that you see these words on like Buzzfeed lists, where it's like. Oh, here's all these, here's like 10 old words that should make a comeback. And it's like, well, we use most of these on the daily here in Ireland. <laughs> Things like ossified to mean drunk. That's great. I love that one. Oh, I love that. Yeah. But also, no, it's just with Rincewind saying he's afraid of depth. I have a funny association with that where it's like, I'm afraid of heights. This is not to do with me. It's to do with the animated show, Be Cool Scooby-Doo. So, are you aware of this show? I am not. Okay, so it was a follow-up to Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, which had a terrific art style. The story was much more mature, and it told a cohesive story across, I want to say, 52 episodes of Scooby-Doo. You know, the characters had profound relationships. There was death. You know, characters actually get murdered. Oh, wow. I have no idea. I would recommend watching Mystery Incorporated if you haven't, but then they followed it up with Be Cool Scooby-Doo. Because Scooby-Doo is kind of like basically an anthology show where each new show doesn't really connect to any of the other ones except for Mystery Incorporated, which I won't say anything about that. But so everyone was like, oh, cool, you know, more Scooby-Doo. But then the art style was really, really weird. I'm going to put in a picture of it into the chat just so you can get a sense of what it was like. You have to forgive my Googling. I wasn't I, I wasn't prepared. For, you weren't prepared for this to come up in a Discworld podcast. I remember thinking it when I was reading it and going, huh, this is the art style that we went to. Okay, yeah, it's a little bit, it has a little bit more stylization to it. It's a little bit Yeah, flatter. but also, it just looks much more rough. Okay, I suppose I should put the Mystery Incorporated art style comparison to show what we went through. I don't know how much, is, is any of this going to make this into the final edit? Who knows? That's for future Tessa to decide. Yeah, editing Tessa. This is just tangent, Nigel. Okay, this is the <laughs> art style of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. Yeah, so that's a lot more realistic. Yeah, and everyone was like, wow, wow this is a massive downgrade. And so, naturally, I was a bit reticent going into the show, but the humor in it is absolutely on point. It does not miss a single beat. But there's this one episode where it's like, Fred is chasing a ghost. You... You know Fred, right? He's the himbo of the group. Yeah, um, of course. And he's chasing a villain out onto the roof of this like old building, and it's really narrow, like pointed Gothic architecture. 
and they're like, be careful, Freddy. You know, it's really high. You don't want to fall. And he's like, oh, I'm not scared of heights. I'm scared of widths. And he looks then across the thing, and it's like a really narrow crossing. And he's like, no, too narrow, too narrow. And then he falls off the roof. That is very, that is a very like Pratchett-esque joke. We're definitely going to see more jokes about heights and the ground and depths in future books as well. Hmm. Uh, now this just makes me want to do a Scooby-Doo podcast. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so many podcasts. Oh, uh. So before we move on from Unseen University, I do want to touch on a couple of other things that we see there. One is we actually get to see the librarian's origin story in this book. So we had briefly seen the librarian in Weird Sisters when Huel and Tom John go to the Mended Drum and they see the li- the librarian the head librarian of the university drinking a beer and he is an orangutan and everybody is just sort of afraid of him. And he's actually the one who sort of starts the bar fight that they get into. This is where he actually turns into an orangutan. We find out he was actually a wizard, like the head librarian of the Unseen University. But when the Octavo saved, when the Octavo did the change spell, which saved Rincewind and Two Flower from falling off the edge of the disc, the resultant magic changed the head librarian into an orangutan. And he seems okay to stay that way. What did you think about this origin story? I gotta be honest. It's like, I kind of pay as much attention to it in terms of like, what's going on. I feel like it's relatively, I was like, oh, that's nice. But I think in terms of, oh, people who are transformed into, okay, I don't want to say hideous monsters or stuff because there is definitely like a history of othering trans people in narratives where they get changed into bodies and they're like oh this isn't my body oh this is disgusting i don't like this but it's really affirming to see someone being like yeah okay this is nice you know i know there you mentioned in your hyperfixations episode there's kind of like one kind of canonical trans person um a dwarf right later on yes yeah but i definitely think that having trans elements to a narrative that aren't like turf stuff you know this is not jk rowling i think that's really refreshing and also i like orangutans i oh i don't know how i'm gonna do this now without crashing discord but i will send a picture of my phone lock screen at some stage to you it's a picture of a monkey and um, i wonder actually i could google it never let me google some stuff yeah and what's interesting too is that the librarian, it starts in this book, and then, of course, we see it in both Weird Sisters and in later books with the librarian. He, like the luggage, communicates so much through body language. He does have one thing he says. He says, ooh, great. Like, he makes orangutan sounds. And what's interesting is that the wizards all seem to understand him when he says that it's kind of like an R2D2 situation where he beeps and then C- C3PO is like, oh, you know, don't take that tone with me. You know, like, so it's it's interesting that. I'm going to take your word for it. I, I've never seen Star Wars. Oh, yes. Well, it's I mean, I feel like there are similar situations in other properties. That's just the one that like jumps to mind. But like, like Tryman even like talks to him and like, he's like, is this the last book of about the pyramids of sort in the library? And. The librarian says, ook, and he like understands what that means. Like it's it's a funny gag every time I've seen it somewhere else, but it's interesting that none of them actually had to learn orangutan like sounds and linguistics. They just automatically knew 
what he was trying to say, even though he had just been turned into an orangutan like six hours earlier. Aha, I found, found monkey. Now how do I share this thing? Sorry, I got distracted by monkeys. <laughs> Is that why you like monkey off my backlog? Were you attracted by the by the title first? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the red monkey on our logo. There we go. That's the monkey. This is my phone lock, lock screen. That's so cute. Yeah, I've taken it from a tweet of mine, which the tweet just says, it's genuinely upsetting me that I can't be this monkey's friend. <laughs> Aw. So you would be friends with the librarian, like you two would hang out. Oh, yeah. 100%. I think, as well, a good example of this with the ook that I've just remembered is Stitch from Disney's Lilo and Stitch, where it's like, yes. what the hell are you talking about? And Stitch would just go, eh. And then Jumbo's like, what? You expect me to help you? <laughs> yeah, I feel like there are a lot of examples but it, uh, from different pop culture. But yeah, this idea that like there are animals that will speak in a certain language or just say one thing. Or Groot. Groot from Marvel. I can't believe that was like the last one I thought of. You know, I am Groot. And it just, they learn what that means, right? In different situations and different contexts. Yeah, until Groot becomes radicalized and becomes a communist. <laughs> As well, have you? Are you aware of the Cartoon Network show Chowder? No. Okay, hold on. Just give me one second. This, I'm sorry. This has become. You're introducing me to so much like cart good cartoon content yeah. here. You know how much I love cartoons. I do, but it's also like uh, I'm sorry. This has rapidly become the Nigel Google's Things episode. Okay, so Chowder was a Cartoon <laughs> Network show based off of the adventures of this weird looking purple dude called Chowder, who works. All of the characters are named after cheese or um, not cheese. Sorry, food, and so. You have Chowder, and he works for a guy called Mung Dal. But this guy, this beige-looking guy over the side, he's called Schnitzel. And all Schnitzel ever says is some variation on Rada Rada. And so you hear him, and he just Rada 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 Rada. And they're like, okay, and they understand him perfectly. That's a blast from the past. I want to say the pink person's name is Panini. I'm not entirely sure. There's something to be said about comparing the hierarchy and the structure of the unseen university to the non-hierarchy of the witches from weird sisters so that was also a question i was going to ask you i was going to refer to page 83 or at least my page 83 where rincewind meets the necromancer the woman who's part of the horse tribe she starts to spread the tarot cards in front of him Rincewind, as it has already been noted, was the worst wizard on the disc. No other spells would stay in his mind once the spell had lodged there, in much the same way that fish don't hang out in a pike pool. But he still had his pride, and wizards don't like to see women perform even simple magic. Unseen University had never admitted women, muttering something about problems with the plumbing, but the real reason was an unspoken dread that if women were allowed to mess around with magic, they would probably be embarrassingly good at it. So, yeah, I just think it's interesting. There's also a lot in this book about how women or how wizards don't have sex, like because it'll somehow like suck the magic out of them. <laughs> it plays into the idea of like women like, yeah, women are like these temptresses who take all your power, right? Like kind of a Samson and Delilah situation. So what do you think, comparing what we know about the witches from Weird Sisters to these wizards? I don't know. I like, I obviously haven't read enough of the series, but it seems deliberately set up. And I'm going to, I'm going to assume this is intentional with 
what was it that you called it, that Star Wars term, machete? Machete order, order yes. Hatchet order, yes, machete order, where it's like, you've put them in stuff, and I know I commented last episode about becoming death through the order of the books, but then also it's like, we start off with Mort, who he's apprenticed to death, but that's like, we get a glimpse of the Unseen University, and then we had Weird Sisters, which is like, they're like, we are entirely self-based we don't even have covens and stuff and look at all the things we can do and now we have between the color of magic and the light fantastic this like more in-depth exploration of more in-depth exploration of the unseen university where it's like this is a very male coded and look men are stupid okay historically this has been proven i will accept there is no evidence to accept to the contrary that men are stupid bigots but I think it's really funny that line that women would be embarrassingly good at it because obviously, like, we have real world examples of like female scientists and female creatives and stuff coming up with stuff and they don't get the credit or recognition they deserve. Like Hedy Lamar created on the radar that was used in early Navy submarines. And she created this back in the, I want to say 1920s, 1930s. And she let the patent expire because she thought, oh, she's never going to get any recognition for it. And as soon as the patent dropped, basically, the United States Navy bought it up. And now it be, it, they patented that technology for warfare. But we've seen in the disc world just how powerful female practitioners of magic are. You know, like Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og are frighteningly powerful. Right. And it's interesting, too, that like... The witches, even though Granny Weatherwax is obviously kind of someone who likes to be alone, there's no similar rule on witches having sex because Nanny Og has been married like three times and has like dozens and dozens of children and grandchildren and like, and you know, Magrat has mm. her, her relationship with King Vernus, the fool. So it's interesting that it's like, it's not just that they have different kinds of magic, it's that the types of magic that they practice are just so conceptually different from each other yeah i think also it's like i don't know isn't the, the, i've never seen star wars but isn't the thing where it's like jedis like don't have sex so this is a funny story because yes canonically jedi are like a monastic order and they're not supposed to they're not supposed to have relationships the idea is that it comes from like this buddhist it comes from like the buddhist idea of like non-attachment so you're not supposed to develop relationships with people that you get attached to you're not supposed to develop attachments to objects or you know anything like that you're supposed to because that will lead you towards like the dark side of the force so the jedi are supposed to you know and, and that's why they take they take children right like to train because they kidnap children and indoctrinate well kind of yeah Basically. And so they that's why they have they take children. And that's why in the first one, which I think you've seen the first one. Well, the Phantom Menace is canonically number one. Yes. That's why they don't want to accept Anakin as a Jedi, because he's too old and he's already started to form attachments to like his mother and like, you know, all these other people. And that's it. It is the arc of the first trilogy is. Yeah, actually, because he formed attachments, he turns evil, which I think is a really terrible message of any... Yeah, but also, if there's one thing I remember, it's, I think it's Obi-Wan, I want to say, saying, only a Sith deals in absolutes, he says, dealing in absolute, only Sith. Oh, yes. Yes. And so, but the funny, here's the funny part of the story. So, 
Recently, George Lucas, who cannot help himself, like, he literally cannot help himself from just saying random shit that, like, like from tink- he can't help himself to- for doing two things. He can't stop tinkering with the movies long afterwards, and he can't stop saying random shit. And recently he said, I never said the Jedi don't have sex. I just said they can't form attachments. And so that led to the entire internet being like, well, you heard George Lucas say it, fuck buddies only. And so, like, Jedi one night stand. Yeah, that's actually the rules about Jedi. They can have sex, they just can't have long term relationships. Honestly, I much about George Lucas. I I I take every chance I've taken, uh, every chance I get, I take it to say I've never seen Star Wars. uh, Proudly, it's like if I were the creator of a really famous franchise, I uh, who now kind of is at the end of like creative ownership of it where the franchise is over or has been bought out for me by a soulless mega corporation. I'm <clears throat> not naming any names, but I would also just say random shit. I would do it just to fuck with the fandom, but not in the JK Rowling way where she's trying to put in inclusivity, you know, where she's like, Oh, such and such is like such, such a character is canonically queer or this. And it's like after the fact. And then also she's just a horrible human being. George uh, Lucas is a good human being. So, don't hold me to that as an absolute fact, but I would just say random stuff, being like, you know, Chewbacca is actually just like a fursuit made up with millions of bees. And just, you know, let the internet run wild. How about it? <laughs> yeah, actually, it's funny. And this podcast is completely derailed, so I'm just leaning into it. But I, what's funny is that this actually does link back to what you were saying earlier about women who's, women who make these accomplishments and then men take the credit for them. So actually, there's a lot of evidence, like this is actually known, that the reason why Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, which was originally just called Star Wars because it was the first one that was made, is actually as good as it is because of Marsha Lucas, okay. George Lucas's wife. The, I, I'm going to send you this link later as soon as I find it that explains what happened. But basically, George Lucas came up with all of these, like, wild ideas made a movie that movie was unwatchable like nobody understood what was happening it didn't make any sense marshall lucas came in and recut that movie to make sense like it is actually i i wish that she was actually credited as a co-director because the amount of work that she did to make that movie watchable like nobody would even know what star wars is if it wasn't for her so there you go Tying it right back in. <laughs> yeah, not dissimilar to with The Great Gatsby, where there's a lot of evidence that points towards um, Zelda Fitzgerald actually writing pretty much all of it, and then F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, just pawning it off as his own. Yeah, there's. I think there's a lot of that. There is a lot of evidence that, for an example, Harper Lee actually wrote In Cold Blood because she did all of the research and transcription of the interviews, and Truman Capote just sort of was there. So yeah, that is like a definite phenomena within Yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna take this opportunity to repurpose a phrase where it's like behind every man is a great woman, but every man is going to steal the spotlight from said woman. It's true. So, so let's let's try to rein this in. Let's try to circle all the way back around to All the way around the disc. All the way around. Most of the wizards at the Unseen University are kind of hilarious because they're these old men, mostly in dressing gowns. Galder Weatherwax has his fluffy slippers with pom-poms, which I think are hilarious. But we also get the villain of the book from the Unseen University, which is Trimon, 
What did you think about Tryman as a villain? I think he's very Shakespearean in nature, which I appreciate it. So like one of my main criticisms about the book is that it kind of doesn't spend enough time on any one thing at any given time to effectively develop stuff. So you kind of have to take everything in the aggregate because despite the fact that this is a continuation from The Color of Magic, like very little time is spent on Rincewind almost in comparison with like all of the other stuff that's going on. But Tryman feels very much like from King Lear, where he's that kind of scheming back. And like, I suppose in this analogy, Galdor Weatherwax would be Gloucester, you know, where he's scheming basically right in front of them and, and Gloucester thinks he knows what's going on or Galdor Weatherwax does. And then, you know, he ends up in power and then Fortune's Wheel brings him back down at the end where he becomes basically a hollowed out vessel for things which live on the other, like, on the other side of the light fantastic. The dungeon dimensions. The dungeon dimensions are a fixture in the Unseen University plots. They're very eldritch. Again, I like you said, I hesitate to use the word Lovecraftian, but that is the word that comes to mind. Like, there are these horrors that live on the other side of that, like, sort of membrane between the Discworld and this other dimension. And at one point, I think, I don't have the page written down, but it's like they always want to invade the Discworld, these these eldritch beings, because it's closer to the shops, which I, I think is really, really funny. But yeah, like that's a big part of this is that the wizards are always trying to make sure that the things from the dungeon dimensions don't poke their way through into the Discworld reality. Yeah, I'm thinking of the um, like the quote here. Knowledge speared into Rincewind's mind like a knife of ice. The dungeon dimensions would be a playgroup compared to what the things could do in a universe of order. People were craving order, and order they would get. The order of the turning screw, the immutable law of straight lines and numbers. They would beg for the harrow. Tryman was looking at him. Was looking at him. And still the others hadn't noticed. Could he even explain it? Tryman looked the same as he had always done, except for the eyes and a slight sheen to his skin where that is a fixture in Lovecraft, where he kind of like takes away the familiar aspects of stuff. There's an awful lot in Lovecraft, especially the Cthulhu mythos, of saying that people's eyes are like hollow, or they have no eyes, like it's all flat skin. Like, it's a very dehumanizing, Um, you know, like the phrase, the eyes are the windows to the soul exists for a reason. Yeah, where like, you know, even if it were flat skin for all of it, if you had eyes, you could at least empathize with a thing. You know, once you remove the eyes, it becomes inhuman eldritch. Right. And it's interesting that Tryman is sort of a specific type of villain even before the dungeon dimension sort of inhabit him or something inhabits him. Like there's a there's a scene, it's sort of a longer quote, but it's really interesting where he's sitting down. Is This is after galder weatherwax is killed like accidentally kills himself in an experiment and so tryman is the head of the unseen university and the six surviving heads of the eight orders sat at the long shiny new table in what had been galder weatherwax's study and each one wondered precisely what it was about tryman that made them want to kick him it wasn't that he was ambitious and cruel Cruel men were stupid. They all knew how to use cruel men and they certainly knew how to bend other men's ambitions you didn't stay in 8th level Magus for very long unless you were adept at a kind of mental judo. It wasn't that he was bloodthirsty, power-hungry, or especially wicked. 
These things were not necessarily drawbacks in wizards. The wizards were, on a whole, no more wicked than, say, the committee of the average Rotary Club, and each had risen to preeminence in his chosen profession, not so much by skill at magic, but by never neglecting to capitalize on the weakness of their opponents. It wasn't that he was particularly wise. Every wizard considered himself a fairly hot property. Wise-wise. It went with the job. It wasn't even that he had charisma. They all knew charisma when they encountered it, and Tryman had all the charisma of a duck egg. That was it, in fact. He wasn't good or cruel or evil or extreme in any way, but one, which that he had elevated grayness to the status of a fine art, and cultivated a mind that was as bleak and pitiless and logical as the slopes of hell. He's sort of the ultimate... Like, he's taken logic to the far extreme, right? Like, this idea that everything should be in order, nothing that isn't orderly should exist. And that almost allows him to be more open to the dungeon dimensions, even though the dungeon dimensions are not orderly, because they can use that extreme to inflict their will on the universe in some particularly cruel ways. Yeah, I think it it sort of echoes nicely. Well, in our reading order, it echoes, but in this sort of one comes before, sets the way for the quote in Weird Sisters, where they're looking at the crown and it's like, this is what makes monsters of men, basically. Is, the, you know, you give give a, give a man a fish and he eats for a day, give a man a crown and he deprives everyone else in the local area of their food while he becomes rich and bloated. You know that, that right, common yeah. phrase. All right, so let, we haven't talked a lot about Rincewind or Two Flowers, so let's let's check in on them. So what did you think about the way in which they were saved at the beginning of the novel? Uh, to me, it felt a little contrived, but I think it was supposed to. Yeah, it feels contrived, like, how it happens, but I think the cosmological reason of the fact that, like, the universe won't let one of these spells, because as they say in the Unseen University... When a wizard dies, all of the magic that's inside of him that he knows comes out in like a big ball. Whereas like these eight great spells, you know, like if a wizard dies with them, they're just gone. There's no way to retrieve them, basically. So the universe tries its utmost. It reasserts itself in the face of this like loss. And I think, was it the color of magic? Yeah, it was with the first footnote the only footnote where it's like, I really like cosmology and world building. And it's like how the universe ticks. This is a really interesting aspect. Yeah. And we see that the Octavo itself, this grimoire of the spells, it knows what's going to happen. It, it has a consciousness of its own somehow, although it's kind of a divided consciousness because they are able to talk, their spells are able to talk to Rincewind and do on several occasions, but they also argue with each other, too, about how the universe was created. They don't want him to die. Like, he has to come back to Ankh-Morpork, and he has to say the spells at exactly the right time. Yeah, I think the whole, like, it feels almost like a running gag, but, like, kind of a deep philosophical inquiry where it's like, how did we get here? And it's like, (laughs) well, and they say, like, oh, well, we did this, and we didn't. And it's like, no, in the universe, how did we get here? And it's really funny to see that because like we don't actually know like in this reality where we came from or where we're going really like for all intents and purposes we may be we might have back of a giant turtle towards a red star you know we have no clear concept even like the big bang is kind of a theory which we've all accepted 
not to be like a big, I don't want to sound like a big bang theory skeptic, but you know, all the science we have suggests it, but we haven't like 100% confirmed it at this stage. And we also, there's so many different theories as to how the world is going to, or how the universe is going to end that we don't have a clear picture of the timeline of the universe. Right. And the, even, I think it's like on the very second page of the book, the narrator tells us that the great Atuan is the only being in the universe that knows where it's going. Nobody knows where they're going or how they got here, which is another funny joke throughout the book, but the great Atuan knows where it's going. And we don't really get a, a huge answer to that. Like where does, where is it going? But it, it knows. I also really loved the joke in this book. It, it starts on page three, but it, it, a couple of people repeat it a couple of times. For an example, it is said that someone at a party once asked the famous philosopher Lytton Weedle, why are you here? And the reply took three years. I laughed so hard when I read that part, because I think Rincewind does it too, where Two Flowers like, why are we here? And Rincewind's like, well, some people think that the creator, and like, oh, you mean like, how did we get here? Yeah, or they have all these different theories where it's like, oh, they're all named really weird stuff, which I can't remember now, but it's all like, you know, like the big, like, sneezing or isn't sneezing one of them i'm trying to remember <laughs> yeah first there was the word no first there was the clearing of the throat no first there was a sneeze yes. yeah it's interesting that that's like a long-running joke in this is that nobody can really say how the universe started it even the great atuan which is the only being in the universe which knows where it's going it has a very like practical mind because we get to see somewhat the thought processes of the Great Atuan in this in this book, and it's a very like you know I have to go from I have to swim towards this thing and then swim away from this thing. It's it's very interesting. Yeah, I really like that. You know, the, where they're like, we had a wizard. You know, we had a whole team of wizards where it's like they're attempting to read the mind of the Great Atuan, and it's like we had them as we had them trained to read the minds of turtles, but we didn't take into account that like this mind would be so large yeah for for years yeah. <laughs> following this yeah following all these slow thoughts and so i i like that i think it's a good counter to like eldritch monsters which fill you up full of terrible knowledge where i think pratchett does it really well the slow mind almost like an end but even slower like the ponders over eons what it's meant to do. You see this in the Long Earth series as well, where he had, I think this is like one of the, the greatest like naming conventions ever. There's these giant, I, d uh, I don't remember what like they're analogous to, but basically these giant beings which live on certain worlds. There's basically great minds, which are very much like the Great Atuan, but he calls them like first person singular, third person singular, and that's what they're known as. I think it's fantastic. Hmm. Yeah, it also kind of reminds me of the trolls later on in the novel, even though they're not as massive, obviously, as the Great Otuan. There's this kind of joke about philosophy, like how eventually a troll will start thinking about, like, why am I here and what are we doing? And that's what causes trolls to sort of, you know, go inert or, like, become part of the landscape. Like, old granddad, who's like this huge mountain just sort of becomes part of the landscape because he's just sitting here sort of pondering the mysteries of the universe very slowly over, like, years and years and mm, years. I'm trying to find out the quote where old granddad wakes up, which I think is, like, a fantastic piece of writing. 
Yeah, here we go. Old Grandad awoke very slowly from his centuries-old slumber. He nearly didn't wake at all. In fact, a few decades later, none of this could have happened. When a troll gets old and starts to think seriously about the universe, it normally finds a quiet spot and gets down to some hard philosophizing, and, after a while, starts to forget about its extremities. It begins to crystallize around the edges until nothing remains except a tiny flicker of life inside quite a large hill with some unusual rock strata. Old Grandad hadn't quite got that far. He awoke from considering quite a promising line of inquiry about the meaning of truth and found a hot, ashy taste in what, after a certain amount of thought, he remembered as being his mouth. He began to get angry. Commands skittered along neural pathways of impure silicon. Deep within his silicaceous body, stones slipped smoothly along special fracture lines. Trees toppled, turf split, as fingers the size of ships unfolded and gripped the ground. Two enormous rock slides high on his cliff face marked the opening of eyes like great crusted opals. I I really like that. It also reminds me of learning physics about semiconductors, how you have to have impurities in them to make like electricity go through them and stuff, which I didn't like being reminded of physics. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's like magic I, physics. Physics is interesting to read about because it goes back into the cosmology and stuff where magic systems work, especially hard magic systems. I think Brandon Sanderson is really good, like especially in the Mistborn books of explaining how allomancy works. I really love reading about that. Yeah, and there's a there's a scene in Light Fantastic that actually specifically reminded me of Sanderson. Not that the way that the magic in the Discworld works is actually that similar to Brandon Sanderson's system. It's a lot less hard system of magic. But there's a scene where Galder Weatherwax, when they're running up the the Unseen University all the way to the tower, and he tries to, like, he launches himself, you know, to fly. He has to drop a stone like he he like severs a like one of the stone parapets and like causes it to fall and that motion of falling he uses it he redirects it to throw himself up in the air and that really reminded me of Mistborn a lot yeah a hundred percent like like the idea of you can't just create motion you have to borrow it yeah like i mean everyone throws around the whole the arthur c clark you know science like sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic and i think it's a bit trite to trot that phrase out at this stage um no disrespect to arthur c clark i think he's a fantastic writer but i think modern pop culture has seized it and uh wore it out one time too many but yeah i like although i actually think about the fact that like there are lots of things in my life that might as well be magic like do i actually understand how a toaster works not really. Like, as far as I know, that is actually magic. We had this conversation the, la- the last time. Like, we don't actually know how cameras work, like the two of us. And so it may as well have a sprite inside of it that right. paints things. Yeah, it's like, I know that there's some scientific explanation for it, but do I care enough to, like, figure that out? Like, as, as far as my brain, my brain has just accepted that it works. So as far as I know, it could be magic. Yeah, it's taken the Todd Howard approach of um, game design, which is just, yeah, it just exactly. works. We should, pro- we should talk about Rincewind, which I I find Rincewind's trajectory in this book to be a lot more interesting than his trajectory in The Color of Magic, mainly because he, uh, so in The Color of Magic, there's a big, we talked about this last time, there's a big vibe of he doesn't want to be the main character, but he keeps getting pulled into the main character position. I felt like it was much more obvious that that was happening in this book. 
because the Octavo has basically said, like, no, you're the one with the spell. You're the one who has to come back to Ankh-Morpork and say the spell. And Rincewind desperately does not want to be a part of this. Like, he does not want to be a hero. He wants to survive, and he's not sure that he will survive for, like, the majority of the book. And then eventually, he only goes along with it because he really just wants the spell out of his head. Like, he's like, you've ruined my life. You've ruined my chances of being a wizard. Like, I just want you to be gone. I feel like that is a much better and much more understandable motivation than the one that he's given in The Color of Magic, which is basically he's scared of the patrician. I know you said that the patrician like becomes almost like a beloved figure in the Watch series and stuff, but he comes off as generically evil in The Color of Magic, and I find that motivation boring. I like I've read basically what I read it, it consists entirely of fantasy. I think like modern fantasy has this look of amazing stories to read, and it's a like a story genre that I've kind of settled into. So I see an awful lot of like different motivations and characters for stuff where like traditional fantasy, it's like here is this ultimate force of evil which needs to be stopped by an ultimate force of good, you know, like in Lord of the Rings or Wheel of Time or whatever. But then as you become more modern, you have more nuanced motivations. You know, like I think you have Game of Thrones where it's like all political maneuverings, things like that. So having just a generically evil villain being like, you know, here's a threat to you and you go and do this and it's, you know, never really followed up on is to me. So I think desperately trying not to be the protagonist when reality wants you to be the protagonist is a much better more interesting motivation for a character yeah and i found the climactic moment where he fights trimon to be both really compelling but also really hilarious because like trimon who has now been inhabited by these eldritch beings is just a ba- as bad at fighting as rincewind is like they're both just kind of like out of shape wizards who've studied magic their whole lives and not like they're not warriors right which there's a really funny section at one point in the book about how and magic is down right and magic is down and so i just i imagine just like uh, two, just like, like facebook instagram and whatsapp <laughs> yeah. went down like i just kind of imagine like you know those like the videos of like cats that are just like slapping at each other but they're not really doing a really good job of it like they're kind of like they're they've turned their faces away and they're just sort of like beat like trying to slap at each other that's kind of what i imagine this fight to be like or i can't remember what piece of media it is probably manny because this is kind of a trope we're exploring more and more now in films specifically like action films where like the hero has to come out of retirement and he used to be something but now he's slightly out of shape he's got you know a family it's usually men in this scenario i don't mean to like eliminate female action hero movies but it's it's very much this genre is male-led where it's like you know nobody john wick things like that where they go and they like wind up a big punch hit their enemy and then they're like winded for a second (laughs) i can't remember what thing it is but then also this is done quite well. This is also in, what happens in Sky at the beginning of Skyfall with James Bond. Yes, done. I think it's done quite well in Metal Gear Solid Four: Guns of the Patriots, where Old Snake and Revolver Ocelot, who are you know like aged in real time, basically, are these really really old men, and they have like they f- have one final fist fight on top of. I don't remember the name of the gear that they're on top of. I don't think it's Arsenal gear because that's from the second one, if I remember correctly. But yeah, like that one 
has a thematic weight behind it where you spend most of the game going back to like the locations of the first game and everything is run down. So I think sometimes it's done really well thematically being like, this age has passed. You know, is there any sense in trying to reclaim it? And sometimes it's like, no, you need to move on. And other narratives, it's like, well, you know, like Beowulf, you can pick up the sword that you left 50 years ago. Whereas, I mean, like Beowulf gets killed by a dragon straight a fucking way. But yeah, uh, I think, but when it's done for comedic purposes, I, th- I find it always hilarious. So Rincewind versus Trimon. I realize I'm rambling a lot. Sorry. This is, again, a ramble-friendly podcast. You and I were both kind of annoyed by the character of Two Flower in The Color of Magic. Did this book do anything to change your opinion of him? No, it did not rehabilitate him one bit. I was just like, oh, he's there. He's super... Like, I like that this book kind of makes fun of tourism. There's this great section where they're like, there are tons of names on maps that are actually just explorers grabbing the nearest native person and asking them what's the name of that mountain and the name that they give actually just means like do you not know what a mountain is like you know like that kind of joke is very funny but two flower that's a real life thing that happened yeah yeah it is and two flower though is very like i don't want to say eurocentric because i'm pretty sure the counterweight continent is not actually supposed to be european but he's very ethnocentric He's very, like, when things don't make sense to him, culturally, it's wrong. And he makes these, like, weird comments where he's like, oh, yes, this is very ethnic, which is just kind of, it feels really creepy and gross. Yeah, it feels like a like a vic- early Victorian stuff where it's, like, very much, like, thing where, oh, isn't it ethnic? It's wonderful. And it's like, what the fuck? This makes, you know, any, like, sane reader of today very uncomfortable. Right. And at first I thought maybe he was making fun of the idea of the tourist, right? Like that person who comes in and just assumes that they know everything or that they, you know, they it's kind of this weird, I, I don't like modifying the male gaze as a concept to other things, but there is sort of a tourist gaze, right? Like the ways in which like tourists look at something and think that they understand it or they filter it through their own preconceptions. And I think maybe that's part of why Two Flower is portrayed this way, but he's also kind of like heroic at the end of the book. Like he is like the optimistic hero that sort of counterbalances Rincewind's desperately trying not to be main character syndrome. Yeah, like he runs ahead of Rincewind at the end towards Tryman when both Rincewind and all of the um other heads of the departments, you know, are like, Well, there's not enough what we can do and then that galvanizes Rincewind to run towards it. And then all of the old wizards are like, well, I guess we'll go towards that then. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to see him in this book. And of course, at the end of the book, we see him separate from Rincewind. You know, he goes back to the counterweight continent. He says, you know, in order to have been somewhere, you have to go home first, right? In order to talk about having been somewhere. So he leaves Rincewind, so we see them separate and say goodbye to each other, which is a strangely emotional scene for two people that really didn't want to be together for most of these two yeah. books. And or at least Rin- on Rincewind's side. He did not, I think, appreciate Two Flower for most of these books. And of course, Two Flower at the end also gives the luggage to Rincewind, which the luggage really comes into its own in these books, or in this book, because we get more of its loyal malevolence is what i'm gonna call it out of its personality 
I've never seen something that's just a box of wood have so much personality as this particular character does. Yeah, like it serves it serves like more of a purpose than it does in the first book where it's like, you know, it actively saves Rincewind's life on multiple occasions and like jumping in front of the thing and it gets teleported away. And we have an awful lot more like POV sections that is just like the luggage trying to find Rincewind. So the luggage does not have eyes, but they acknowledge that they can feel the luggage looking at them. Yeah. (laughs) You know, where it's like, this has eyes that we just can't see and it's therefore humanized for want of a better word, even though it is a wooden chest. Right. Yeah. It has like these like emotional affects, even though it is just a box. Like somehow they can read its attitude without a face to read it from. Yeah. Also, I remembered the name of the place where Liquid Snake fights, or sorry, Old Snake fights Liquid Ocelot, and it's Outer Heaven, where this fight, you know, between legacy and memory takes place in a place called Outer Heaven. But yeah, so we get, you know, the luggage is with Rincewind now. So we're going to see that in, of course, play out in later books. The luggage now follows, and now the luggage has now transferred all its protectiveness and its loyalty to Rincewind. You know, we'll kill for him, we'll protect him, we'll have his, you know, dirty laundry and give him clean laundry. The the luggage also is the receptacle of the Octavo, which falls into it at the end of the fight with Trimen. We also get introduced to another really important character in the Light Fantastic for the Discworld in general, so important that he has his own book that's really based on him called The Last Hero. We get Cohen the Barbarian, which is, of course, a direct ripoff of Conan the Barbarian, which is was a very popular sword and sorcery hero that's been in... Arnold Schwarzenegger played him. Multiple pulp magazines. He's been adapted to books, comic books, films. The character was created by Robert E. Howard in 1932 for a series of fantasy stories published in Weird Tales magazine. And of course, we get what is basically the same character in Cohen the Barbarian. In fact, there were American versions of the Light Fantastic that mistakenly reprinted his name just as Conan the Barbarian instead of that, you know, changing the N to the H like Terry Pratchett does. But Terry Pratchett gives us a twist on this character because he's clearly recognizable as Conan, right? He has like, he's like this sort of barbarian warrior. He's just kind of wearing this leather loincloth and the big boots, but he's old. He's like 80 years old. And the idea is, is that when you're that good being a hero or being a warrior, like what happens when you outlive all of your enemies? Like, do you just keep going on adventures? Because that's all you know how to do. Like, he doesn't even have teeth anymore. And so there's a lot of jokes about him, like, sort of lisping his words and shoop, right? He can only eat shoop because of it. And, and you know, I actually really enjoyed it when he got his dentures from from Two Flower. Yeah, I, I love as well how all of our diversions have, like, act like circle background to being relevant. Like, the one about Milton, relevant. The one about Scooby-Doo, relevant. The one about Metal Gear Solid, relevant. Because, yeah, the character of Cohen, he's that Beowulf figure. Also, Ken the Mountain Goats quote, just two flowers, quote about you have to go back home to have been somewhere to appreciate it. Going to Georgia is a famous one that John Darnielle will no longer play. Going to Scotland, going to wherever. And he kind of wrote those as like almost critiques of people who put their 
based the whole thing of like I'm going to this place and then I get there and it's like okay and then you're there for like four months and it's like wow this place is no longer cool it's no longer like the place it was when I was there and so then this song we do it different on the west coast that you know where it's like we do it on the west things that are happening and then in the second verse it has the line and Dave went to New York I don't care you can't shut people up once they get back from their I just like that sentiment to two flower yeah I I feel like the two flower thing Honestly, it kind of feels like maybe it's parodying Bilbo from The Hobbit a little bit, how he's like, I just want to go home at the end of The Hobbit. But at the same time, it feels awful convenient. It feels like, oh, we're getting rid of Two Flower because we don't want him in the next book, uh, which is sorcery. Yeah, like they're they're shooing him away so Rincewind can be like on his own with the luggage. And it's like, well, what's a convenient way? Oh, we just make him want to go home. And I understand the need to like in fantasy settings where it's like home is where the heart is blah blah very trite but the pull towards home is really interesting and you know characters where they're like i just want to stay where i am or then also conversely characters who are like well i like it where i am now i want to stay here is a good way i think two flower falls in between and is neither here nor there where it's like we just want him gone Obviously, the Unseen University is not the only location that we see. Rincewind, as a character, tends to travel a lot. So we see a lot of, like, the different countrysides of the disc, as well as a a city that's sort of inhabited by religious extremists, which is possibly the most terrifying part of the novel. Yeah. But we also get to see Ankh-Morpork again. He returns to Ankh-Morpork. And we also get to see, surprise, surprise, Death's House, and a very quick cameo of Isabel. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I'm try- I have the page bookmarked there. I think it's 134, where they're learning to, yeah, where they're learning to play cards, and it's like, they can't think of the name, and they're tossing around various bridge or pontoon. I don't know enough about either card game to base it off of this, but all of the words circle around that, so I'm saying it is either bridge or, or pontoon. Similar games. Listeners who play Bridge or Pontoon, please tweet at us if you know what game they are playing in this book. Yeah, but then as well, I think it's really funny where it's like they escape and then it's like, you know, a few seconds later, the horsemen arrived and didn't stop when they reached the edge of the rock, but simply rode into the air and reined their horses over nothingness. Death looked down. That always annoys me, he said. I might as well install a revolving door. And then they go on about the about the card game. I wonder what they wanted, said Pestilence. To me, said War. Nice game, though. Right, agreed Famine. Compelling, I thought. We've got time for another fondle, said Death. Rubber, corrected War. Rubber what? You called them rubbers, said War. Right, rubbers, said Death. He looked up at the new star, puzzled as to what it might mean. I think we've got time, he repeated. A trifle uncertainly. I I didn't realize that bit was right there, but yeah, the fact that Death is uncertain about this thing, where he's kind of like, like, he knows a lot of what's going to happen. He knows, like, in The Color of Magic, there's going to be a big plague in Sephophilus, and he needs to be there to reap all the souls. But this potentially, like, this threat, which could potentially wipe out all life on the disc, he's like, well, I don't know about this one. Yeah, it's interesting what Death does know about and what he doesn't know about. But here we also get the beginning of his 
like attraction towards human things. Like in Color of Magic, we don't really see the version of death that we see later in Mort, where he's very interested in humanity. But here we can see him becoming very interested in trying to figure out this very complex card game. Yeah, I I like interesting and complex card games because I think they're easier for me to follow. I've given up on playing board games correctly. However, card game I I play games like a lunatic. I employ a combination of just sheer like unbridled chaos and I I don't know whether this is going to make it into the podcast, but sheer unbridled chaos <laughs> and the Columbo strategy, which is <laughs> just pretend like you don't know what you're doing and then pull a whammy on them. You know, where you, you, you have your, oh, just one more thing moment. But I've done that, and it's like, it's really funny, because I play Monopoly and Cluedo. Like, there's one time I was playing Monopoly with my friends. I could quite clearly see, like, I have the, just, I'm not saying this to be like, oh, I'm manipulating people. I Most of the time, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I have no concept of what's happening around me. And it's quite evident when you look at my face, because it's usually bunched up in concentration. But... In Monopoly, I was quite aware of the fact that two of my friends had two properties in a certain color, and then they were like, I had the other ones of those two sets, and they were like away, like one away from a Monopoly, and they wanted to like buy the thing, and one of them was like, oh, I'll give you this amount of money for this, and I was like, hmm, you know, making a big deal of it, and they were like, they changed their their offer or whatever, and I was like, you know what, sure, go for it. I did this twice, and all of the rest of the people were like, what the fuck? You know, like, you gave them a Monopoly, and I'm like, oh, it makes the game more interesting, I guess. (laughs) Um. I'm a huge board game person, but I enjoy really complex ones as well. I enjoy ones that are cooperative, like where you're working with people. Yeah, like, you know, when you've got your three other buddies who just happen to be the other horsemen of the apocalypse. Exactly. Yeah, that's a fun, fun game night. Yeah, so this is our first uh, our first glimpse of the other horsemen of the apocalypse. We will we will see them later. They this is not a one-off with them. Oh, lovely. I I would hope that I didn't break out separate new voices for pestilence, war and famine. Um <laughs> only for to have them never show up again. No, they will show up. We will, we will get to them as well. What did you think about the the city that they come to that has decided that the the people with the red stars painted on their foreheads and they've decided that the reason the red star has appeared is because of wizards and they want to kill and purify magic from the disc. I think this is probably the, the most interesting, like my favorite part about this entire book is this whole concept of like magic extremism or well, I guess extremism in the face of magic is what I mean, where it's like, Oh, all of her problems have been created by, uh, and I don't want to say I endorse this. Obviously not, because we saw far too much of that with the whole coronavirus pandemic, blaming it on people from different countries and stuff. And, you know, like you brought the virus, like that's just shitty racism. But I think it's really interesting that it's explored through the lens of magic because we see it an awful lot in media, um, with superheroes. We've gotten to the stage where we've gone to the deconstruction of the hero, where everyone needs to be gritty and everyone needs to be really, really upset about what superheroes are doing. You know, you had it in Batman versus Superman. You had it in Civil War with the signing of the Sokovia Accords. You have it in The Boys. You have it in so many other things. Even My Hero Academia is at that stage in the manga. No spoilers, but that's where it's at. And I think having it with magic, where it's like, 
down what magic uses. And it's, it's completely and utterly frightening the way Pratchett does it, where it's like, this is a mob who, like, legitimately could possibly tear you limb from limb, you know, just kick the ever living crap out of you for being a magic user. Like, there's that whole line where it's like, oh, all these wizards tried to do stuff. And, uh, you know, they said they were big hotshot magic users, but when the time came, they couldn't do anything, you know? And it's obviously because the red comet is in the sky, but yeah. And it's, it's really horrifying. fucking frightening. Yeah. Like, the way that they talk about these wizards that they killed and, like, looking like they couldn't do magic and they were just sort of looking at their hands in horror while they're being killed by this mob. Yeah. Now, obviously, not every magic user is good, but I think the way that's painted, like, you're quite clearly taking advantage of someone who's quite upset, and then you're just being like, haha, I guess I'll kill you, you know? It's very much, like, framed like a slaughter of the innocents, you know, like, in those fantasy stories where it's, or, or the Bible, which is a great fantasy story, where they're like, go in and kill everyone, you know? You remember how... Right. You remember how uh, King Herod was like, yeah, kill all of the babies. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of horrible things in the Bible. People who people don't realize how much terrible stuff is in the Bible. Or like, you know, the multiple genocides that are ordered in the Old Testament. Yeah. However, just really briefly, big shout out to, I think, possibly my favorite biblical hero. And I have only one, I hate the Bible, as a, like, dogmatic, but Judith from the Old Testament, who, you know, just, she just has enough of Holofernes and, um, beheads him and, you know, holds out his head and be like, look at this. I love Judith. So I, you know, it's funny because this, this scene in the book also coincides with one of the appearances of death. And death calls the mob the death of the mind, which I thought was just. Why did you have to bring that up? That was going to be my thing that made me think. Oh, okay. We can, we, we'll just. No, no, no. Leave that in. Leave that in. <laughs> well, I just thought it was so interesting. Like the death of the mind. Like he says, not like this, the death of the warrior or the old man or the little child. This I understand. And I take away the pain and end the suffering. I do not understand this death yeah. of the mind. No, uh, just, you can edit this part out where I say this, but leave that in. I think it's a funny joke, but yes. Well, also. Like, I feel like that hits different now, too. Like, I feel like there's a large part of the world, I mean, this, especially in the U.S., I think, where there has been a real death of the mind. Like, we can see that in, like, the ways in which American Christianity and patriotism and, like, anti-science and anti-intellectualism have all combined to create these, like, really, and racism and white supremacy have all combined to make this these really terrible like anti like death of the mind type yeah, movements. It, like I want to okay, I have two things. So I I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna go with like a critical point and then a story, an anecdote. So I yeah, like it, I think it ties back to what we were talking about earlier on with like the concept of inhuman monsters where it's like, you know, you understand the people die because they get killed or, you know, they die of natural causes, be they young, old, distinguished, rich, poor, whatever. You know, that's the death that death understands. But this is like people are alive and they've entirely surrendered their mind to this like ideal which has been put into their mouth by like an eloquent speaker. And, you know, we have real world examples of how this has turned out horribly, you know, with like the rise of fascism in 
20th century Europe and stuff. Like, that's a death of the mind that led to actual deaths. You know, it, it's very, very deadly and worrying. And, you know, like, you, you know, you talk to these people, then they have their position and they're not coming down from it. They may as well not have any mind because they're going to brook no arguments, which is fucking terrifying. Right. And even more terrifying, all of those deaths of the mind sort of like, if you study like mobs, which is like really terrifying in and of itself, like mobs A themselves mob have their own sort of consciousness that sort of exists when, an, yeah, it's like when a lot of people get together and they're angry or afraid or whatever, but they almost act in a way that's very like, it, it's almost like they are one unit. Like a mob is like an organism in and of itself, but it only has, it has very like simple goals and those goals are often very violent and terrifying mm. in this way yeah like yeah like it's the whole like hive mind thing which is associated with aliens but then once you apply like we have a different name for when it's with humans which i think seems vaguely like um apologistic uh you know where it's like oh it's not as bad when humans are doing it or whatever but it's like it's also re like just as worrying just as alien you know like, a hive mind is the same as a mob mentality. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That totally makes sense to me. Oh, may I share my story? May I share my anecdote? I was walking to work yesterday, and I saw my first ever occurrence of anti-mask propaganda here in Ireland. Like, I'm not saying that it was never put up at walls, but this is my first time seeing any of it. And it's an uh, anti-mask one, and it says, like, uncover... So, it's an illustration of three heads wearing masks. And the first one says no voice on the mask. And then the head is slightly faded and it says no face. And then the other one, the third one, the head is gone. It says no human. And the tagline of the poster says uncover your face. And obviously I want to preface this with, I do not believe in this. I think this is a horrific uh, ideology. But what I think is really, really funny is that one person has written on the poster, go fuck yourself. And then the other person on top of where the third head should be has just written, sorry, what? And I love how, you know, people have met this frightening, <laughs> like, cult, basically, who, like, whose actions actively endanger the population with mild-mannered confusion, which is just, sorry, what? Like, this makes no sense. From an outsider perspective, their death of the mind makes no sense to people with actual minds. Right. But it has these, like, terrible, violent consequences, which is... It's so strange to me that that can happen, but it does happen. And so I think that this is, it, it's really interesting the way that he describes this. And it almost seems like it, like, like I said, it seems almost more relevant now. There's another scene that also seems more relevant now, but it's on a much lighter note. So obviously when we're recording this, this is a couple of days after Facebook went down for like six hours. And that was like Facebook and Instagram and all of that. And you've already mentioned it once mm. when talking about how the magic system goes down when they get close to the red star but there's this section that really reminded me of that moment in where the mob is trying to get inside the unseen university what reliable magic still remained in the university was being channeled into keeping the great gates secure 
The wizards were learning that while it was all fine and impressive to have a set of gates that were locked by magic, it ought to have occurred to the builders to include some sort of emergency backup device, such as, for an example, a pair of ordinary, unimpressive, stout iron bolts. And all I could think of when I read that was the way in which the Facebook employees couldn't get back into Facebook, because, like the headquarters, because all of their keys were connected to the network and the network was down and nobody had thought to have a oh i didn't physical know that key oh my god yeah like all everything went down with facebook and they couldn't even get back into the building because all of their stuff was electronic and nobody had thought to actually make a lock on the door that was a physical lock that couldn't go down if the system went down yeah i think that's a whole other conversation which maybe we can return to because, like you say, um, Ankh-Morpork becomes more industrialized. I think it'd be a good conversation to have, like, in a fantasy lens with, again, the Mistborn books because they go from, like, pre-Victorian to, like, steampunk and stuff. But it's like, there is this whole debate over, well, innovation versus use. Like, it may be very, it's all well and good to have these things, but, like, outside of being a hipster you know, or sounding like a hipster, it's like, the old things existed for so long for a reason because they actually work. Right, exactly. And, you know, these networks can go down. You can actually lose all of that information. So, yeah, it's it, it, it was just funny to me. Again, this was written in 1986, still feels relevant, still, a full, still hits. full nearly 40 years before. <laughs> before Facebook went down for six hours. Yeah, oh. to use another to use another vaguely Irish expression, Facebook wasn't even a twinkle in Mark Zuckerberg's eye when this was written. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know how I don't even know how old Mark Zuckerberg is. Like when this was released, maybe he wasn't even a twinkle in his parents' eyes. 1984. Yeah, he he would have been two. He was born between the color of magic and the light fantastic. Yeah, so when he was two, obviously his parents read him the light fantastic and he said you know what i'm going to do i'm going to set up a social media which is originally just to rate the faces of girls who i'm in college with which is like disgustingly creepy but you know so then 16 years after that it can go down and become analogous to this scene <laughs> this from one a, reference <laughs> yeah Oh, I God. love how every single episode of this podcast, we have some story which we have like blown the case wide open on. Last episode was um, the fact that Imagine Dragons, <laughs> Imagine Dragons are Discworld inspired. <laughs> and now this one, we have the great Facebook conspiracy. This is like, you know, those people who are like trying to figure out like the Illuminati or whatever. We're like, how has Terry Pratchett infiltrated every level of our society? Yeah, exactly. Like. <laughs> It comes back, like, the stuff we touched on in the opening episode where you're, you asked me how I got into Pratchett, and it's like, I don't know. I think I was just always aware of him as a cultural concept like Stephen King. Now, obviously, like this one, I was aware of Rincewind and the Unseen uh, University from when I was, like, seven or so, but it didn't really connect with me that this was Pratchett. This was just, like, a part of the fact which I didn't realize was part of it. Right. So before we wrap up, we don't we can't end this podcast without talking about the actual plot of this book, which is this mysterious red star appears, the great Atuan seems to be swimming towards it, and the closer that it gets, the more the magic systems of the Discworld break down, which is terrible for the Discworld because the Discworld operates mostly by magic. 
But then we discover that actually what's happening is that the Great Atuan is returning for some eggs that were left a thousand years ago. And these eight eggs contain infant turtles with elephants and their own discs on their backs. What did you think about this reveal at the end of the novel? I think it was a bit corny, to be honest. I enjoyed the small worlds as a concept because it's not it, like the disc world is physically not a ball, which is floating in space like our Earth is. You know, it's on the back of living elephants, which are on the back of a living turtle. So I think that was interesting. But the whole reveal that, oh, this whole catastrophe is the greater two and basically giving birth or aiding in the birth of, you know, because they talked about the whole, the, these two first two books is like, well, everyone wants to find out what sex the great Atuan is and what would happen if they met a tur- like a giant space turtle of the opposite gender. What would happen? But it, it has the bang of children's media off of it, where it's like, oh, our pet has disappeared. The pet is gone forever. And then they discover their pet cat or dog or whatever is actually holed up and they've given birth to a litter of puppies or kittens. You know, it feels children's media. And I enjoy that in children's media, but I wasn't expecting it in Discworld. So I guess it uh, blindsided me almost. There's no other way to put it. It was like very confusing and very corny. (laughs) And that's fair. I do think that I I did like that they didn't actually confirm the sex or gender or anything of the Great Atuan, though. Like, we still don't know. And maybe we'll never know. The Great Atuan... The the Great Atuan could be the father, mother, or just parent of these babies. Like, we have no idea. And don't don't come at me, internet, saying, like, oh, well, it's only the mothers that, like, escort their young. No, this is a giant space turtle. Like, we have no idea, like, what the gendered expectations of parenthood are here. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very Pratchett. Like, I enjoy that aspect of it, where it's like, we don't get an answer. Everyone expects there to be an answer, but then we just go, oh, well. And uh, Pratchett gives a subtle wink. <laughs> does gender even mean anything to the Great Atuan? I'm not sure that it does. I think gender doesn't mean anything at all, specifically to the Great Atuan. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so either. All right, before we wrap up, we have to go through our stats. So there were four death sightings in this book. There's the one at the very beginning, which is also one of the ones that I laughed the most about, where the wizards perform the Rite of Ashkente, and they summon death to try to figure out what's going on with the disc after the Octavo saves Rincewind. And it, it, actually, it actually chronologically makes sense with the end of The Color of Magic, because in The Color of Magic, you'll remember, death doesn't show up for Rincewind when he's dangling off the edge of the disc. It's the demon Scrofula. Because he says death is busy with a plague in Pseudopolis. And then when they summon him in this book, he comes straight from a party. And it's very much implied that he's at a party that the party from The Mask of the Red Death, which is a short story by Edgar Allan Poe, which is, of course, about a plague. Is it? I've never read it. I am aware of the story. You haven't? Oh my gosh, do yourself a favor, read The Mask of the Red Death. It is particularly terrifying in the time of COVID, but it's very much about that. Like, Midnight is when they think I'm going to take my mask off is definitely a reference to that story. Oh, yeah. But also just, like, what a line, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's, it. like, it's as close to, like, chilling as you get 
uh, I think, in Discord, because it, you know, it's a very optimistic, light-hearted, like, satirical fantasy and stuff, but it's like, that's very chilling. You know, you could expect, like, a pure evil being, say it, whereas death is, like, chaos, or, sorry, neutral good. Right, but I don't think he says it in a particularly sinister way. I think he just says it in a very matter-of-fact way, which almost makes it more terrifying. Oh, I read it as sinister, but yeah, if you read it as matter-of-fact, you just, yeah. That's when they think I'll be taking my mask off. The Rite of Ashkente is very much like the opening of Sandman Volume 1, where yes. they try and summon death and end up with Dream, and in this one they try and summon death, and death is having none of it, so... You know, parallels between <laughs> yeah, death is two death is very much over the the right of Ashkenta. Yeah, and they're like, oh, I had all this prepared, and death is like, bye bye. <laughs> so the se- the second instance is on my in my book, it's page forty three, but it's Greyhold Spold, who is the oldest wizard at the Unseen University. He notices that death lo- is looking at him kind of funny during the right, and so he makes he does makes this like elaborate system of magical protections and spells and traps and he locks himself in a box knowing like and this is sort of the end of it he had just set the complicated clockwork of the lock and shut the lid lying back in the knowledge that here at last is the perfect defense against the most ultimate of all of his enemies although as yet he has not considered the important part that air holes must play in any enterprise of this kind and right beside him, very close to his ear, a voice has just said, dark in here, isn't it? Yeah, that goes back as well to the first book's um, conversation he has with Fate, where he's like, you know, I can't be denied. No one can escape me. Even if you build these things, he's just going to be in there, like, you know, making a pithy remark. Yeah, and it also reminded me of the part in the first book where he hands the match to the innkeeper. Yes. <laughs> like, where he's just, like, in the dark and he hands him the match. Although, I think it's also funny, this moment, it works on several levels, because on the one hand, yes, you can't escape death. Like, death will always already be there. But on the other hand, it's heavily implied that Spold kills himself because he hadn't thought about air holes. Yeah. We've already talked a little bit about the death sighting where he go- where Rincewind goes to Death's house to retrieve Two Flower, and we find Death playing some sort of complex game. Two Flower trying to teach Death and the other three horsemen some sort of complex card game. And then finally, there is the moment that I mentioned earlier where they run across the city with the religious extremists or the anti-magic extremists and Death. They see Death already there in the crowd, or Rincewind sees Death in the crowd. And there are multiple footnotes in The Light Fantastic, under, unlike The Color of Magic. The first footnote is on page six. In much the same way that gnats appear before a thunderstorm, really heavy buildups of magic always attracted things from the chaotic dungeon dimensions. Nasty things, all misplaced organs and spittle, forever searching for any gap through which they might sidle into the world of men. And then here's the footnote. They won't be described, since even the pretty ones look like the offspring of an octopus and a bicycle. It is well known that things from undesirable universes are always seeking an entrance into this one, which is the psychic equivalent of handy for the buses and closer to the shops. Yeah, so, yeah as someone who has to rent in the city, you know, I, I quite appreciate that. What was your favorite footnote? So which, So that was the first one, but what was your favorite? 
So uh, no one knows why, but all the most truly mysterious and magical items are bought from shops that appear and after tr- after a trading life even briefer than the double glazing company vanish like smoke. There have been various attempts to explain this, all of which don't fully account for the observed facts. These shops turn up anywhere in the universe and their immediate non-existence in any particular city can normally be deduced from crowds of people wandering in the streets, clutching defunct magical items, ornate guarantee cards and looking very suspiciously at brick walls. That might seem like like there are other ones to do with like how things work, like the explanation of a thong. But I really enjoyed this one just because it's like it speaks to an awful lot of like stores in Dublin or you see them where it's like they have a closing down sale for ages and ages and they pay or they, they sell the most odd assortment of items. But then also I think it's a fun turning on the head of the like monkey's paw cursed vendor thing that you see in things like needful things. Where it's like, this store is just gone, and everyone is just like, well, we've got nothing, really, and we're just going to look at these brick walls, because it might be there. It's kind of like the shop also in the beginning of Gremlins, even though that characterization, the characterization is super Orientalist, so, yeah, Gremlins is a great movie, but that shop is very rooted in those types of discourses, but it's still like that magical shop where things just sort of exist. Yeah, hey, Tessa, I've never seen Gremlins. <laughs> You've never seen Gremlins? Ugh. It is both somehow an adorable movie and also a terrifying movie. I know the concept of Gremlins, but that's it. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I only watched it for the first time a couple years ago. It does hold up for the most part, besides the beginning Orientalism stuff. But my favorite footnote is on page 132 in my book. Where they're talking about, so there's this joke throughout the whole book that I found very funny about descriptive language, and it almost becomes like this meta commentary about how we describe things in fantasy novels. And it turns out like descriptive, uh, overly descriptive language is outlawed by one of the rulers of Ankh-Morpork. <laughs> like you have to actually prove that what you're describing is like the simile that you're using or the metaphor that you're using to describe it. I found that whole gag very funny, but there's a footnote that kind of references that, where they're talking about the disc light and how it poured like molten gold, and then there's the footnote, not precisely, of course, trees didn't burst into flame, people didn't suddenly become very rich and extremely dead, and the seas didn't flash into steam. A better simile, in fact, would be not like molten gold. Yeah, you have that as well in several other ones, like, you know, for... Uh, an interesting metaphor. To nocturnal trolls, of course, the dawn of time lies in the future. What What's something that made you laugh out loud in this book? I'm going to go for something very early on, which you kind of you you kind of touched around, but which is the description of the Great Atuan. Uh, great Atuan, the star turtle, shell frosted with frozen methane, pitted beneath your craters, and scoured with asteroidal dust. Great Atuan, with eyes like ancient seas and a brain the size of a continent through which thoughts moved like glittering, like little glittering glaciers. Great Atuan of the great slow slab, sad flippers and star-polished carapace, laboring through the galactic night under the weight of the disc, as large as worlds, as old as time, as patient as a brick. Actually, the philosophers have got it all wrong. Great Atuan is, in fact, having a great time. <laughs> I, I like to think that the Great Atuan is happy in like a very slow giant turtle sort of way yeah i really enjoy the word ponderous and i feel like it yeah it fits, fits very well for the great atuan 
So the thing that made me laugh out loud, several things in this book made me laugh out loud, but one of the things that I think is particularly relevant since we had this whole conversation about sex and gender for the Great Atuan is this line on it's it's when Tryman is trying to explain that he's getting rid of all of these like archaic systems of magic and artifacts from the university and he's trying to like run this meeting the the wizards are just not understanding what he's trying to do what's this paper said jiglad wirt of the hoodwinkers waving the document that had been left in front of him and waving it all the more forcefully because his own chair back in his cluttered and comfortable tower was anything more if anything more ornate than galder's had been it's an agenda jiglad said tryman patiently what does a gender do and I laughed so hard. I don't think that the point of this was to actually say, what does a gender do? Like, it's supposed to be like a wordplay on agenda, a gender. But also, I kind of just want to tweet, what does a gender do? Fuck it, I'll do it now. <sighs> Restricts things. Yeah, and then the other moment, because I, I couldn't choose between that one and this other one, was on page 103 when when Rincewind is is debating whether or not to jump from death's house down into like the the like void that connects him and two flower to the disc and he says he paused uncertainly although that isn't precisely true because he was totally certain of several things for an example he didn't want to jump and that he certainly didn't want to face whatever was coming up behind him and that in the spirit world two flower was quite heavy and that there were worse things than being dead name two he muttered and jumped i just Name two. Name two things that are worse than being dead in Death's house. Oh, I hate the fact that the first thing that came to my head was Hermione Granger saying expelled uh, um, from the first Harry Potter. I think what what could be worse than being dead? The loss of identity? I mean, I personally think there are worse things than being dead, but I think in this situation, Rincewind was thinking about being killed by death. And the three horsemen in Death's house. Oh yeah, obviously, but it's a fun it's a fun little hypothetical to play. So what was the thing that made you think besides the death of the mind section? That's really it. Like it's I don't I, nothing else really springs to mind other than the whole like conversation about like fanaticism and stuff, how that works, and especially in a fantasy setting. So can I go with that? Yeah. In fact, mine is very similar to that. It's later on in the same section. So it, it kind of ties into what you were saying. When Two Flower asks a shopkeeper where all of the, the people in this mob come from, and the shopkeeper responds, inside every sane person, there's a madman struggling to get out. That's what I've always thought. No one goes mad quicker than a totally sane person. That doesn't make sense, said Bathan. Or if it makes sense, I don't like it. Yeah, very much like the Shirley Jackson, um, you know, no being can exist for long under conditions of absolute reality. Yeah, I, I think that that's part of it. Yeah, this idea that, like, if you don't accept that the universe is chaotic, if you try to, like, hang on to this order, it does lead to things like fanaticism in that way. So, next week... We are, you said, you said you wanted to spend more time in Ankh-Morpork, so next week we are going to stay in Ankh-Morpork and join the city watch for Guards Guards. 
Feel free to read along with us or listen in to get a feel for Pratchett's books or to remind yourself of why you love Discworld so much in the first place. Nigel, where can people find you online and on their headphones? Mainly on Twitter at SpicyNigel, where recently, uh, as you may have heard, I've tweeted out, what does a gender do? Um, still awaiting <laughs> responses. We, yes, uh, to tie it into where can people find me on headphones, I have a podcast called Hyperfixations, where each episode a new guest comes on to talk about a subject they're passionate about. But we have recently teased the uh, upcoming episode which is, this will be out later anyway. So it's on global cuisine with the um, cover I did. And Finn responded with a picture of Galactus. And we were like, well, guess the cat's out of the bag. But then Tessa interacted with it and said that I would ask Galactus, what if he ate the boss baby? Which I hate that little fucking baby. I stand by that joke. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. That made me laugh for like 10 minutes straight. But yeah. Archive Admirers, which is a uh, fortnightly re-listen and discussion of the Magnus Archives by Rusty Quill. Both of those are available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can find my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. We just launched a new Monkey Off My Backlog website. That's at www.monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Visit it to find all sorts of writings and ideas about pop culture, as well as other spinoff podcasts like this one. You can also find Nanny Og's Book Club on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. You can find us on Instagram, along with that really brilliant cover art that Nigel designs for us every week at Nanny Og's Book Club. You can email us at nannyogsbookclub at gmail.com, especially if you know what game two flower is teaching death and the other three horsemen, or if you know what a gender does. All right, Nigel, read us out. Well, that's about it then, said two flower. He held it as- Goodbye, Rincewind. I'll send you a postcard when I get home. Or something. Uh, anytime you're passing, there's bound to be someone here who knows where I am. Yes. Well, that's it then. That's it, right enough. Right. Yeah. Two Flower walked up the gangplank, gangplank, which the impatient crew hauled up behind him. The rowing drum started its beat, and the ship was propelled slowly out onto the turbid waters of the Ankh, now back into their old level where it caught the tide and turned towards the open sea. Rincewind watched it until it was a dot. Then he looked down at the luggage. It stared back at him. Look, he said. Go away. I'm giving you to yourself. Do you understand? He turned his back on it and stalked away. After a few seconds, he was aware of the little footsteps behind him. He spun around. I said I don't want you, he snapped, and gave it a kick. The luggage sagged. Rincewind stalked away. After he had gone a few yards, he stopped and listened. There was no sound. When he turned, the luggage was where he had left it. It looked sort of huddled. Rincewind thought for a while. All right, then, he said. Come on. He turned his back and strode off to the university. After a few minutes, the luggage appeared to make up its mind, extended its legs again, and padded after him. It didn't see that it had a lot of choice. They headed along the quay and into the city, two dots on a dwindling landscape, which, as the perspective broadened, included a tiny ship starting out across a wide green sea that was but, that was but a part of a bright circling ocean on a cloud-swirled disk on the back of four giant elephants that themselves stood on the shell of an enormous turtle, which soon became a glint among the stars and disappeared.
the end.